The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. Welcome back to another episode of Real Psych. I am Dr. J.D. Barton, and I am a licensed clinical psychologist. And I am Dr. Joanna Witkin, and I am a cognitive neuroscientist. Real Psych is a new podcast where we share our gorgeously thoughtful opinions on the psychological phenomena playing out in all of your favorite movies. Mm, J.D., will there be learning? Uh-huh. Will there be science? And how? Will there be delightfully informal, explorational, informational conceptualizations from two best friends who would be talking about this anyways? Heck yeah! Heck yeah! Heck yeah! <laughs> For those of y'all uh, listening, I know what you're thinking. Oh my god, he sounds incredible. Gorgeous. Gorgeous. And that is because your boy has upgraded the system. Upgraded, yeah. Yeah. Uh, friend of the pod, uh, my friend Zach Noe Towers, who has an excellent podcast called Good Morning Sodomites, uh, featuring me on an episode from <laughs> his first season, uh, was kind enough to help me uh, figure out uh, a lot of audio stuff. Yeah, I mean, we know <laughs> that the audio is not <laughs> great, and it is a barrier to wanting to listen to this. And we, we are we're doing our best. This is not what our degrees are in. <laughs> yeah, we are not. So. This. We hear you. We love you. We're trying. And we know you're trying to hear us and love <laughs> us. <laughs> so exactly. We do appreciate you. Um, yes. After last week, which was a real nightmare festival in terms of just like, w- you know, we're also recording this like in our homes, which are mm-hmm. not soundproofed. And we have oh, dogs no. and people and washing machines. Yeah. Yeah. And we live in cities. We live in in cities, and it is hard. There do just be garbage trucks. There be noisin. And last time, y'all may have noticed a gorgeous like uh, lawn care maintenance team that started working on my neighbor's house in the middle of recording. (laughs) And so there's a nice little edit where that got uh, silenced a bit more. But yeah, so we do want to say, and we'll stop talking about this, and hopefully it'll never be an issue again, and everybody will be like, "Wow, your audio is so perfect, and everything's great now." Yeah. It's like a bowl of Apple Jacks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> Remember Apple Jacks? Yeah. Dang. I mean, we don't, you know why we forgot about them? Because we're adults and they're for kids and kids eat what they like. Isn't that tricks? Tricks are for kids. But <laughs> Apple Jacks had this whole thing where grownups were like, why do you eat Apple Jacks? They don't taste like apple. And the kids would be like, we eat what we like. Oh, yeah. Also, they do oh taste my God. like apple. 
I don't remember. Yeah, they do. They do taste like apple. That's right. Am I just being gaslit? <laughs> I don't know. I will say I had grape soda for the first time in years yesterday. And I was like, this, this is grape. Like, I didn't remember what grape. It, it doesn't it taste tastes like purple. Grape. It tastes purple. Yeah. Tastes yeah. Like so purple. I think Apple Jacks taste like what Apple apples Jacks. look like. <laughs> Not taste like. They taste like red and green with sprinkles. <laughs> yeah. Or like orange and green. Yeah. yeah. Honestly, we need more orange and green like color patterns, um, which someday we'll have in all sorts of ways. All sorts of Love magical it. little ways. Um, how are you feeling about the fact that the Supreme Court hates women? Yeah. So that was a tough day. Yeah. Um, not a good day. No, it's, I mean, it just feels like what the country's going backwards. It's horrible. Yeah. It is like, like, I don't even know what to say that hasn't already been said and totally. that doesn't feel totally meaningless. Yeah, I agree. Um, and it's just like emotional and a lot of my friends taking it really hard and just yeah. feeling like, you know, I, no social media post can summarize what this means or, you know, like I, I just, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm taking a lot of time to kind of like reflect and just think about what's, what this means and yeah it's yeah it's tough i agree and it's it's one of those things where i'm working really hard not to just mentally try to make things better in terms of like making me just feel better right like i I mean i obviously want things in the world to be better but um yeah i'm i'm not like totally able to process like the sadness and the butthurtitude of yeah. all of it and I know AOC posted a really nice thing that was sort of like this is awful don't lose hope yeah. and I do find AOC to be a really like hopeful radical I love like, her she's so good um, and I you know I yes I think I think it's impossible to be a politician without having some dirt under your fingernails in the you sure. know when they say dirty hands but it's I think she really is uh, somebody who can make positive change and there's more and more AOCs in the world. Yeah. And she she does. And she said it's going to get worse probably before it gets better. Yeah. But I do follow that sort of narrative sometimes when I'm at my most despair. And I just think like the arc of time bends toward justice. And I just have to think. Yeah. That. Yeah. And I not d- let up and not like, you know keep voting keep being politically aware vote and local active. y'all like yeah. vote local give money to these things i mean there's a bunch of really amazing um you know uh, there's a bunch of really amazing orgs that are doing the work to keep abortion safe and available to people mm-hmm. across the entire country um you know doing doing our best california is doing its damnedest right now to make sure that abortion is safe and legal for anyone who comes to california yeah that's uh, great which is a big deal um and super important i think yeah yeah i wish i could hug you yeah just like get real drunk together (laughs) yeah i mean i i think like i've never been so like politically in touch and that's like this weird to say like 
a gift from Trump being president is it forced me to kind of like, okay, I need to know what's going on and I need to do something about it, even if it feels dumb, like, you know, sending a text or like, you know, writing a letter to my senator or um, I like was texting people to vote like for the last election and joining, you know, volunteering for that and just like very... small things that feel very small but just being a part just being aware just listening just like trying to do what you can it all adds up and so i think that's just to not lose uh momentum i think biden totally like becoming president i i did take a break like because we were so so easy yeah it was so easy or so tired four years it was totally of just like checking the news every single day yeah um and just being like yeah he's you know things aren't great still but like i just need to relax like i just need to check out on dopey so just remembering you know like trying to take care of yourself but also keeping that momentum staying politically aware and trying to do what you can yeah that's that's all you can do i agree wholeheartedly and you know, just being mindful. I I think the thing that, you know, similar to you, that since Trump's election that has like really just blown my mind is the uh, really learning how much capitalism, white supremacy, imperialism, like all of those things, misogyny, queer phobia are all so deeply tied into this nation. And that, that, you know, a lot of this is, it means that it's working exactly like it's supposed to work. And that in order to, you know, change the system that's going to be a radical, big, scary thing because Absolutely. that's the only way to do it. It is built to uphold the status quo, not to change it. Yeah. And that's going to be big and weird and scary, but you know, we got to look toward tomorrow. Yeah. I believe that children are our future. <laughs> And that's why we did this podcast to teach them well and let them lead the way. (laughs) Should we talk about this movie? Yeah, let's talk about a movie. All right. This movie is from 2006. It is right in our sweet spot. Yeah. You know, I was really thinking about this movie as we were saying this intro because our line says we talk about all of your favorite movies and Mm -hmm. I know that for the people listening, this is one of your favorite movies. The tagline gives away everything about it for anybody who's seen it since 2006. Anybody who knows and loves this movie is going to know exactly what it is. Um, I'm going to give you the tagline uh, one sentence at a time, Joanna, just to, you know, take your time, give you a chance to really guess and not have it. Uh, so the first sentence is, hell on heels. Okay. <laughs> yep, ready for the next the, one. The last sentence, I'm going to skip the middle sentence. Okay. The, okay. the last sentence is, a million girls would kill to have her job. <laughs> Devil wears Prada. That's correct. <laughs> I, I was like pretty sure from the first sentence. I mean, it had to be. Oh my gosh, this is so good. This is so good. I'm so excited. There's actually 10 million ways that we can talk about this. There's 10 million Uh, things we can do with this. 
I want to talk about the Adrian Grenier of it all, the boyfriend. Uh, I mean, <laughs> what a fart in the elevator. That boyfriend <laughs> is just the He's perfect. Worst. Like, he, yeah, it's, it's so, oof, yeah. I think, too, like, um, having women be breadwinners or be ambitious yeah. or be career-oriented, this is a conversation I have with a lot of my friends yeah. who are in heterosexual relationships and trying yes. to navigate that. Yes. It's a whole thing. So, yes. yeah, I'm very excited. I'm sore exhorted. Uh, I think it's going to be bonk towns. Um, I cannot wait to, like, synopsisizes right after yeah. this break because yeah. I, like, I don't even want to go into it because we're just going to go the fuck in. Yeah. Excuse my language. But you know what? It's been a weird <laughs> week. <laughs> It's Let's been a weird do week. the damn thing. Let's just do the damn thing. All right, bye. Bye. Ooh. We are we back. Are back. And God, I love this movie. <laughs> it's so... Good. I will say, like, there's so many bosses that come up for Same. me. <laughs> the I, grad school flashbacks I, I was this. having. Oh, my God. Crazy. Yeah, for sure. For both of us, and, honestly. Uh, not to, like, I know, I know. And not to get, like, too ahead of myself, but, like, the doing some research about kind of, like, boss yeah. dynamics. A lot of the articles that came up were about yes. academia, and that's probably because of Research you know, is me research, and a lot of yeah. people yeah, <laughs> writing these articles are academics. But it was interesting to see, like, just how many articles there it's, were. It, there's a lot on. Uh, there's a lot on academia. There's a lot on um, management styles in general, um, mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. you know, it tends to be the kind of thing where companies are willing to put money into something that helps companies make money. So they want to know about how right. to manage people. So it gets a lot of things. There's mm-hmm. a lot about gender. There's a oh, lot yeah. about gender. Big time. Um, let's let's synopsize this because you know we're gonna editorialize yeah, as we synopsize. <laughs> For yes. sure. All right. So we have um, Anne Hathaway. This is is this the first big movie since Princess Diaries? I think this is her. Yeah, I Brokeback Mountain was actually I think in between the two. Brokeback Mountain, gotcha, I think, came yeah, out in 2005. Yeah. She was, like, supporting. She was supporting. I mean, she she was doing yeah, yeah. well as an actor. And I know yeah. a lot of a yeah. lot of actors were in the running for this role. They wanted this part. They mm-hmm. knew it was going to be good. And I think Meryl was signed on very early. Yeah. Ugh, yeah. So good. Um, so, yeah, we open on Anne Hathaway. Andy Sachs. Andy, who's this serious journalist. You just know, graduated from Northwestern grad, University. Yeah. Um, has her boyfriend, has her friends. She is interviewing for this job at this big magazine, yes, Runway, yes. this fashion magazine that she has no, like, no knowledge about, which is like, even if you didn't, if you're right. not a fashion person, you should do your homework. You should do your homework your, before the yes. job application, for sure. Although, to, be, right. to her credit, it does just say um, Elias Clark, HR. And then, so the H, so okay. it could just be for any magazine. I mean, that's like content. It's supposed to be content asked, obviously, which has, you know, dozens right, of right. publications that work yeah. in this building. Right. Because HR sent. Okay. Gotcha. Anyway, so she shows up 
We have Emily. Emily Blunt. I mean, Anne Hathaway as Andy Um, Sachs and Emily Blunt as Emily, whatever her name is. Yeah. Yeah, so so good. good. But yeah, um, you know, she's kind of already, you know, from the right off the bat is very disapproving. Hates how she's dressed. No, she's, you know, doesn't know, doesn't fit the part. Doesn't know who Miranda Priestly is, is horrified by that. Think she's undeserving. Right. She's sort um, of immediately but, rejected from a world that she's already rejecting. It's sort of a mutual rejection. Mm-hmm. She thinks For fashion sure. is kind yeah. of silly and shallow, and they mm-hmm. think she is a frumpy pile of turds. Yes. Paraphrasing. Um, there's a lot of comment on her weight, which is. We'll talk about it. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so Miranda Priestly shows up, Meryl Streep. It's like this whole thing. Everyone's freaking out. Everyone's right. trying Culture to get their places. Culture of fear around this boss coming in. Yeah, for sure. And uh, she ends up interviewing Andy Sachs mm-hmm. herself because the last couple of people that Emily had interviewed didn't mm-hmm. work out. So Miranda Priestly is like, I'll have to do it myself. So interviews very her. It's very briefly, obvious that very she's... Curt. Uh, very direct. Yeah. You have no sense of style. Well, I think that depends on... No, no. That wasn't a question. Right. They also right. do... It actually... This movie, I thought, does kind of an amazing job of the really, really obvious exposition that somehow works because she's applying for the job. Yeah. So, of course, her walking through and getting some info about the job where it's like, well, a million girls would kill for this job. If, if you do this job for one year, right. you can be successful. Bloop, blop, bleep. Where it's really right. like hitting it hitting it on the head, but also like works totally. because the, the concept of them right. explaining this job to her is real. Like she really would be learning about it. So mm-hmm. it feels a little more natural than in, in a lot of movies. Yeah. So she gets hired she thought that she blew it but she gets hired um and immediately is just thrown, thrown into, into the deep end this day yeah. one she's already late for work um, like they call her at like 6 right. a.m and she's already late basically she comes in mm-hmm. they make her mm-hmm. sort of answer the phone into the deep ends and she has a great bit of course for anybody watching it where she's like can you please spell gabbana for me and they hang up on her <laughs> right. um and miranda has this culture right. where she sort of makes these very intense demands with very little information so it's the kind of like nightmare mm-hmm. job where she's just like yelling these mm-hmm. things at her and she also then very quickly um she calls her emily and she goes in and she tries to correct her and say oh my name is andy and she then tears right. her a new one, looks at her shoes yeah. to make sure she knows that they're hideous, and then calls her Emily. Yeah. Bullying. Yeah. A lot of a lot of that. A lot of that. Um, and a lot of Emily not approving of her. I think there's this like um, aspect of I'm sure Emily's when she first joined, it was very, very difficult for her. Mm-hmm. I think there's like a like a hazing aspect of like, this is what I experienced when I started. This is what you get when you start. Um, Everyone kind of making fun of her because she's so frumpy. And and, quote fat. She uh, names that she's a size six. Right. And they call her fat Um, constantly. Right. Right. There's Stanley Tucci, who's like the fashion editor. And um, he is. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) And he, um, yeah, he's kind of, like, not approving of her either, but starts to, like, try to help her out by giving her shoes, by trying to get her to acclimate, I guess, to the culture a little bit more. Um, But basically, her life is just completely trying to be good at this job without fully buying into it. And then um, there's a point where, um, what is it that she messes up? Oh, the flight. Uh, Yeah, she can't get her back from 
Uh, so, so as the film uh, sort of ramps up, she starts uh, having to really alienate her family and friends to do this job well. Mm-hmm. And so her dad comes to visit for the weekend mm-hmm. and Miranda calls in the middle of a weekend that she was supposed to be away and mm-hmm. uh, demands that she get her a flight back from Miami in the middle of a hurricane, uh, which she yeah. cannot do. Miranda is then so hard on her and she goes to Stanley Tucci for sort of support after that. Right. And he's kind of not that sympathetic but also does help her when she kind of realizes she needs to fully yeah. buy in and um show that she's serious about yeah the job. He, he has a, also, um, also a nice sort of thing she she considers herself an artist with integrity you know a writer with integrity and he gives this mm-hmm. great monologue where he's like this is a magazine that published some of the greatest artists of our time and like you need yeah. to understand you you act as though this is all beneath you and i think you don't have enough respect for what we are doing um, right. Which I love. And she, you know, of course, I don't think the flight thing is like, he's like, no, you're not trying. Where it's like, the flight thing, she really did try. Like, I think that was real. Right. Um, I think he was speaking more to that bigger thing of her her having the general right. sense of thinking that she's above it. There's that very famous scene with the blue sweater. Uh, the, the cerulean sweater, which, y'all, I, could, I YouTube that scene at least like once every six months just to watch her. <laughs> just all, uh, you know, something you thought you were above what when you were in fact... Uh, wearing something that was chosen from you from the people in this room from a pile of stuff. Uh, it's a really good yeah. monologue. It's re- it's a real gorgeous sort of dressing down. Um, so Andy then uh, gets a makeover. Makeover time. Now yeah. she goes from being Super a fun. hideous girl to being a yeah. glamazon instantaneously. Right. It turns out it was Anne Hathaway the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> she literally what, like... Put a, a straightener through her hair. Yeah, got she bangs, just she did keratin. Called, she did the like, keratin treatment. Yeah, she got bangs <laughs> and wore and started wearing Chanel. Um, also, right. I will say, like, she also loses weight because guess who doesn't have time to eat? Yeah, she goes to a she size, goes to a size four. four. Cheers. So she then yeah that they so cheers, cheers over. over. She then um, is sort of uh, very shortly after this. Um, is given permission to, quote, return the book, the sort of rough draft of the magazine that is a, a hard copy, to Miranda's yeah, office, she becomes which is there every night. With this, and yeah. she brings the book uh, to Miranda's office, and her daughters toy with her, and she walks up and overhears mm-hmm. a very personal conversation that Miranda is having, a fight with her husband. And Miranda yeah. the next day comes in and says, basically, you must get, she, she knows she's in trouble because she has invaded Miranda's yeah. privacy. And she says to her, you know, if you can do anything, because she entered her house, which of course means you can do mm-hmm. something she shouldn't do, but she thought she could do. She, I mean, it's, it's revenge. revenge. It's revenge. She says, you yeah. must get me the unpublished manuscript of the new Harry Potter, of the last Harry Potter book uh, for her mm-hmm. daughters in an hour. Which, of course, like what yeah. a... You know what an imp- a completely impossible task. Like no, no human mm-hmm. was gonna was gonna get that. But she manages through this man that she has met at a party, who she has a big crush Simon on. Simon Baker, the, the mentalist. mentalist. She met the mentalist, who plays a man named Christian Thompson, who you already know is bad news. She admires him, and he's super sexy, Ugh. and he's into her. Uh, she calls him, asks him for a favor, and he gets her a copy of the book. She does this, and. Uh, kind of blows Miranda's mind. She manages to do it and has a really nice sort of 
you know, alley-oop, like Hail Mary pass, but where she even brings one copy to Miranda and she says, and what am I supposed to do with this one, co- what am I supposed, what are my twins supposed to do, share? And she says, oh no, this is just a copy for us to have on file. The twins each have a copy bound with them already on the train to sleepaway camp or wherever they're going. And it's like, the grandmas. Like, just totally. Yeah. No, she just she like just, nails it and she knows that yeah. she nails it. And that's when she starts calling her Andrea. Andrea. Yes. She starts calling her Andrea. Yeah, by her actual um, name. Well, and, and then um, throughout this, by the way, her boyfriend and her friends are feeling more and more angry with her commitment to her work. Alienated. Um, right. Like, yeah. Not being able to make uh, her boyfriend's birthday. Yeah. Like, just becoming this person that they don't recognize, um, that they've known. It sounds like they've known each other for they, a very you know, long they, time. They, yeah. They, they seem to think that she's becoming a totally different person by being so committed to her work. And this is the great disconnect, I think, of millennials and Gen Z watching this film. Is, yeah. uh, you know, the, yeah. the biggest uh, the, the biggest villains, I think, now, culturally, we all agree in this film, are the boyfriend and the friends, who totally. are constantly judging her, constantly insulting her for her commitment to this job that they know she's only going to do for one to two years so that she can go right. elsewhere. That she's doing to get ahead like kind of paying her yes. dues yes right and and just doing what she knows she has to do because she is you know early right. in her career and this will open a lot of doors for her and she knows that but they think they feel like they're losing her because a she's just not around that much but also she's yeah. changing which is also just developmentally yes. what happens she's when you 22. start your career real. this to me is yeah. actually the biggest uh trigger in terms of like grad school memories is like people not understanding mm-hmm. how yes your boss may be a nightmare but also they control so much of your future that you must yeah. jump whenever they say so and like that and other people totally don't get that. and you also you also like there's a some mental gymnastics that happens where and this isn't just in grad school, I've experienced in yeah. other scenarios, but just like you, you want to yes. get through. Let's talk about grad school. I want, I wanted to get yeah. my PhD. My mentor wants yes. to look good, right? She wants to have successful yes. students because that makes her look good. That's what she signed up for, and so we want yeah. the same thing at the end of the day. So you do what you yeah. got to do, right? You do what you got to do to get through it. And, and similarly, it feels you know, like the job a million girls would kill for. PhD programs are right. so highly competitive and they are and, and the weirdly the one of the weirder things is they make it feel even more intense because they give you a stipend. So weirdly they're paying right. you to get your education which then makes it mm-hmm. feel like they own you even more. It is Oh totally. Like cuz you're not allowed to even accept you're other allowed, employment yeah. even though the stipend is not enough yes. to live off of in many yeah. cases. And yeah, it's. I remember it's, one time. It's this power yeah, imbalance. Yeah, I remember one time at Miami, I actually was at a restaurant and ran into somebody who, from our program who was a waiter at the restaurant, and she saw me and went cold, and she was like, "Please don't tell anyone I'm doing this," because oh she was gosh. breaking the rules. You're not supposed to have yeah, a side yeah. job. Because you're supposed to focus 100 exactly. percent of your energy exactly. and efforts into doing yeah you know and low and cost her mentor was the, like actually pretty chill department. and probably would have been totally you know okay with it but technically programmatically you weren't allowed to do so but anyways so her friends mm-hmm. really come for her they do a thing where she gets a phone she gives them gifts from her fancy job they're yeah. all so happy to get these yeah. gifts then her phone rings and they try to keep the phone away from her that was such Trauma. yeah that was like uh, when i was watching that i was like they're so that who would who do would that, do that? 
Who would do that? Also, yeah, very, very disrespectful. Very disrespectful. They, they just have this. It is such a holier than thou opinion about the. There's work. a lot of throwing around the word integrity, integrity. right? Ugh. Of being grungy, of being, uh, you know, like cynical yes. and not buying yes. into things. That this uh, idea of you know maybe this hipster yeah, mentality, this hipster mentality <laughs> that him as a chef spending nine dollars right. on cheese to put on a sandwich is somehow any different than buying luxury right. clothing like that this experience yeah. this elevated experience that he's trying to create is somehow higher like in terms of integrity right there's integrity what yeah. she is doing when she is at she is the assistant to the editor-in-chief of american vogue essentially right of runway magazine yeah. which is the yeah. apex in American fashion, but even global fashion, American Vogue, especially at this time, was peak, 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 peak. Oh, I mean, for it sure. is yeah. and infuriating that he and the friends get and to it's just also, choose it's not like the morality she is, of it. Right. And I would argue that she's not even trading in her integrity. I do think that she is, like, gaining an appreciation for fashion and, and the art mm-hmm. that it is. Absolutely. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even, you know, they're kind of throwing these cheap shots and she, I guess, doesn't have the energy to explain. She doesn't have the energy to explain, I guess. Uh, I mean, they yeah. do, she does start to name that, like, she's like, wow, look at all of these, like, uh, you know, this, this magazine is publishing Joan Didion. This magazine is publishing, like, these voices that are so Yeah, important. she's trying to, but, right. I will say, too, though, that that is the mental gymnastics part that sometimes people do to, like, oh, justify totally. the shitty experience that they're currently having is, like, look... All of, you know, look at the bright side, being optimistic. I mean, Stanley Tucci, that's his whole thing is he's choosing right. to be optimistic despite, despite he has never to getting he acknowledged. Has to never. Yeah. So that's it's, it's a, a choice. choice. Right. And whether that works out or not yeah. remains so, to be so seen. So right but. around this time, she has a, a, a couple moments where she really starts to do well. And she actually starts to show up the first assistant who is Emily Blunt's mm-hmm. character, who, by the way, throughout the movie, mm-hmm. we haven't said it, she's incredible and she's the funniest person alive. I actually think she is as good incredible. as Meryl Streep. She did get a Golden Globe nom for this and she got a BAFTA nomination for this film. Um, wow. Who was a previously well heretofore unknown uh, Emily Blunt. She's, she mm-hmm. only started acting in 2003, uh, at least IMDb-wise. I'm sure, Obviously, she was acting before then. She's British. I'm sure she's like from you yeah, know, yeah. RADA or something crazy. But anyways, she starts to um, sort of outperform Emily and now uh, Miranda promotes her and chooses to bring mm-hmm. her to Paris Fashion Week, which we already know is going to be like the sort of, um, from the whole beginning, is going to be the climax of this film. It is Emily's dream from, from forever. forever. Like She's her finally entire the first life. assistant. The very first thing she says is, you answer phones and get coffee. I go to Paris with her in yeah. the spring. I mean, this is set up like this is her ultimate yeah. goal and what she yeah. has worked for. It her is whole also funny towards. the way the film works that like it has to create this like story arc when it's like, Anna Winter is in Paris several times a year for like fall, winter, and spring. Like she goes to the fashion week yeah, several times yeah. a year. Like there's only there's one only opportunity. One. It's just spring. Um, but anyways, yeah. And sh- and Miranda puts her in a position where now she has to not only accept this and uh, and agree to step over Emily, but she must tell Emily. And I will say though too, like everyone's giving her a hard time about like, oh you, she, you know, she's like I didn't have a choice, but the way that uh, Miranda like says it to her is you know i thought you wanted a future either at this magazine or, or any, any other, other publication. publication there's, there's a, a threat. threat there that really that really jeopardizes her future if she doesn't say yes so everyone's like oh you had a choice and it's like 
did she, you know, right. like she was threatened. Oh, absolutely. You know? She was threatened. She was put in this position. Um, and she takes it. Uh, by, and also at the mm-hmm. same time, her boyfriend gets extra mad at her for some bullshit and he breaks up with her. For not making her his birthday. And then it was, oh, it was at as that, he comes to the art that, gallery thing and, and she yes, gets caught. Yeah. Like Christian Thompson kisses her on the cheek. Her friend gets mm-hmm. really mad. And also her friend is just immediately shitty to her rather than going up and be like, what the hell is going on? Right. Like, I've known you for 16 years just and I don't know who you her, are. Which is like, yeah. Bonk yeah. towns. Um, she leaves. Right. She's already feeling upset. She's already feeling attacked. And, you know, one more thing. Fights with the boyfriend. Flies off to Paris. Um, mm-hmm. Again, very early on, bumps into Christian Thompson. Uh, mm-hmm. find, you know, he, he decides to whisk her out. The next morning, she finds out that there is a plot to um, unseat Miranda as the editor-in-chief of Runway. And, be, and replace her with the editor-in-chief yes. of French Runway, Jacqueline Follet. Oh, Jacqueline, surprise! <laughs> um, uh, who we know she hates. It's her enemy. She's a younger, yeah. you know, weird, terrible clip in highlights. Um, yeah, lady. It seems, yeah, that uh, she's preferred because she's yeah, younger. She's preferred because she's younger. Um, so she, uh, she then uh, runs around Paris trying to tell Miranda beforehand that this is going to happen. But uh, and Miranda completely rejects her. And what ends up happening is at the announcements for James Holt, this up and coming designer who was going to take Nigel Stanley Tucci on as his partner as he went global, which Miranda Mm -hmm. put him up for. And even told him that he got. got. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. They um, she did a last minute switcheroo and Jacqueline Follet is taking this job that Nigel thought he was up for, which means Nigel has been denied a promotion, a lot of money, something he's really looking forward to so that Miranda can keep her job. Yeah, it is her, uh, you know, sacrificing whatever she promised to this person who's done nothing but serve her really well to save her own career. Yeah, to save her ass. Um, it's a CYA <laughs> moment. There's this, what you um, uh, said earlier, uh, Stanley Tucci has a moment where he, she says, he's like, I have to believe that she's going to pay yeah. me back. She'll, she'll, get, she'll have my back mm-hmm. at some point. And she says, do you believe that? And he says, I have right. to. Because he's done 18 years, uh, you know, working for right. Runway. Anne Hathaway is in the car with her, leaving, and she says, I can't believe you did that. Or, and she actually... Miranda praises her, saying, you thought I didn't know. You really fought for me. I saw what you did there. Um, I've, of course, known this was happening for a long time. And she says, I can't believe you did that to Nigel, though, Mm -hmm. Miranda. And uh, she says, I would never do something like that. And she says, you already have. Yes, you would. You already have. You did it to Emily. And so she sort of laid this trap. And it is kind of a bit of the... um, you know, frog boiling mm-hmm. metaphor, one degree at a time, you know. Yeah, to, to she's made very slow choices to get to where she is in this moment, has Miranda's approval, essentially, um, and is really taking a step back of like, what have I become? What am I working towards? Right, right. And there is an argument in which like continued participation is mm-hmm. consent, um, which uh, in, you know, I, I suppose is like, it is passive consent it's a, it, a i think it's tricky on. because it's very you know, and tricky I, and it's i don't messy. think she's given andy like i don't think she's given any credit for the like abuse and the power dynamics that she's under oh, absolutely and i 
Also, the sunk cost totally. of how much time and even she's at the end when in, she's like, oh, you're going to fire right. me now? Well, even at the end when she's interviewing, he's like, you were at this place for less than a year? Like, what's that about? You know, there is uh, criticism for not being in a position yeah. for a year. Yeah, absolutely. And there, and it is, especially at mm-hmm. 22, like, what are you doing? Are you whatever? So she, in this moment, realizes that Miranda's right and that she has, in fact left her sort of moral center and she gets out of the car and Mm -hmm. walks away she Mm -hmm. quits the job on the spot she throws her cell phone Mm -hmm. in a fountain very dramatically (laughs) very Carrie Bradshaw and um and goes back to New York and then tells her horrible boyfriend that he was right about absolutely everything and she was wrong about absolutely everything let's have a long distance relationship and he like Eats right. Pie. He like talks about, you know, the advancements in his career and she's super supportive and happy for him. We'll talk about that. But, you know, we'll talk about that. <laughs> uh, and I even mean. discuss some kind of long distance relationship, which makes me mad. It's it's so infuriating. She then gets a job. She goes and interviews at a at a newspaper. He said, you know, and at the New York mm-hmm. Mirror. Um, cause that's real, but he, she interviews and the guy was like one year at runway, what kind of, bl- of a blip is that? And she says, learned a lot. Uh, and basically says, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a fit mm-hmm. or whatever. And he says, Miranda personally sent a fax to me that said, you are by far the greatest disappointment she has ever had. And if I don't hire you, I'm yeah. an idiot. So she's done the right thing. She calls Emily offers to give Emily all the From clothes Paris. that she, it's uh, like a small Paris, token of trying to make amends, a small token. Um, in the book, she actually sells all the things that she got and gets forty thousand dollars. Oh my god! Um, in two thousand three or whatever, right? Like she gets an insane amount of like she gets forty thousand dollars for the for the resale value of what she gets, and then uh, she has a she goes she's walking by the Elias Clark building, sees Miranda getting in the car. Miranda sort of nods to her, and she nods to Miranda, and then Miranda smiles. <laughs> yeah, and then looks to the driver and goes, "Go." <laughs> I actually I hated that that's part the movie. as well because I just felt like that was like keep Miranda make Miranda Miranda that's not what Miranda would have done right Miranda would not be like <laughs> like I'm so glad she right. made that Miranda decision. would send that fax she might begrudgingly yeah. she might begrudgingly send that fax but I think she she's not gonna lie right she, she would send that fax and I feel like that's the most generous that she would be and that's the most brain space she would spend on it and that's it exactly she's gone from her mind um we should also name uh, this book is ri- the, the original book is written by Lauren Westerberg Westerberg Westerberger yeah. uh, Lauren W, <laughs> who uh, was Anna Winter's mm-hmm. personal assistant. So she was the PA to the editor in chief of American yep. Vogue. This is very. This movie was very, or this book and film were very publicly based on yep. Anna Winter. Um, of course, it is a you know dramatized version. Um, Anna Winter, I think, has I, I commented a little bit about it, but it, it doesn't you know it's not a real person. Yeah, uh, it's just sort of based on the flavor of. You and know, like we said uh, too, this is Anna a lot Winter of bosses. Is supposed to be. You it's know, a lot like of bosses. This is... I mean, you and I both saw it and related. Yeah, and I think a lot of people did, which is speaks to the popularity of this movie. Oh, yeah. absolutely. And, and I think a lot, yeah, a lot of people have had a boss. I remember, like, the number of times you have a boss that just says, well, I guess you're going to have to figure it mm-hmm. out about something completely impossible that it's like you would never, doing jobs they would never do yep. themselves. Um, and 
yeah, I mean this this film, it's really it good. It is really good. I actually it's well done. I really love the book. I haven't as well. read it. Yeah, I liked it quite a bit. I read it before the before the movie. Oh my goodness. Um, little bookworm. What? Oh, you know me. <laughs> you know me. Just a avid yeah. reader. Um, yeah. So. This, this movie's so good. Yeah. So there's a lot of themes here. I feel like there's so, mm-hmm. so many directions we could go in. Um, so many. A lot of things that I was just like doing. I do like lists after I watch them of just like all the things that came up. And then. Yeah, same. I write themes as I yeah, read as I watch. And then mm-hmm. my research goes in kind of this winding path. Um, but really, you know, there's like this new lens, this 2022 lens, which we're a lot of the movies that we do, we're, we're doing that with. Um, of like right, who's of the course. real villain here and I think there can be more than one villain um, absolutely there's, there's a lot of things that came up right like nobody comes out of this movie oh, squeaky no. clean and I Literally I will say no too one. though even except for Stanley yeah, Tucci he's perfect even except for all the ways that he insults yeah. her body constantly right. actually uh, it's kind of like pro-anorexia aspects of this as well yeah. is very problematic yes um, but yes. this early career kind of power imbalance um, speaking to, you know, like your and my feeling, because this is how I felt was like, you got to pay your dues. You know what I mean? Like you, you, you have to, in your early career, like you can't expect to be treated well. And that's actually this interesting, I was reading just briefly, like millennial and Gen Z um, mindset mm-hmm. of this, gr- this quote unquote yeah, grind culture. That's mm-hmm. actually possibly not true and very harmful <laughs> you know very and harmful. and i think like even acknowledging that off the bat is like we have our own bias in terms of like this is just what you do and the fact that her friends couldn't understand that blah 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 um i think they're still being jerks about it but i think they could have definitely been more concerned about her mental health in a way that was like still trying to support her you know like there's a way to point out that this is oh, not yeah. okay um in yeah. like an appropriate way because it, it's not okay um but it's so that was just like one thing that i was like and it is like built into the i mean like even like for clinical psychology you have to do a certain number of practicum hours so you have to pay tuition or like pay into a program just to work Mm -hmm. for free you have to work for free for for years and years and years just to get the opportunity to apply for internship where you then work for very little money full time and you have all these things and then you have to do a postdoc so even after you graduate with your doctorate you have to work for a decreased Mm -hmm. rate in order to get the hours to then meet this full thing. And I, I had some truly traumatic supervision experiences yeah. uh, clinically where you're then like sitting there feeling like you know nothing and people treat you horribly. I actually, just a quick give everybody chills story. I once had a, a supervisor um, whose name I will not say, but ooh, I wish <laughs> I could, um, who literally sent me a, a like four page long email of everything I was doing wrong as a practicum student in a university counseling setting she said all of the things I was doing wrong. When I met with her the next day for supervision, I asked if we could talk through the list. And she said, you want to talk about that list? And I said, yeah. And she goes, you don't have any of your clients that you want to talk about in this meeting. Oh, my gosh. Like, just gaslit Like, even me. you're wanting to discuss that feedback. She's making you feel How to like do better about it. Then it just made me a bad therapist. Right. Like, it was wild. Yeah. It was horrific. Jeez. Horrific. Yeah, I mean. I really want to say her name, but I won't. <laughs> Anybody who knows me, text me yeah. on the side. I mean, I, I know. <laughs> you know. You remember those For stories. Sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think. You were there. Not I there, was, there, but I, yeah. emotionally. We talked about it when I was there last time, I think. Um, yeah. Oh, I bet. Anyways. Um, yeah. 
so you know there's this this part that i wanted to just like name is like i actually totally buy into mm-hmm. this grind culture that's the only yeah. way we got through the programs and the experiences it's the only way we yeah, graduated that we went through um but there's also you know this like ambitious women with careers and like you know women being in positions of power or leadership not being able to quote unquote have it all because you see this mm-hmm. happen with Andy who is very career focused yeah. making decisions in the interest yeah. of her career and it impacts her relationship with not only her partner but her friends you see Miranda go yeah. through this getting a divorce um and you know this the fight that Andy overhears is um the husband being like you know I waited there and everybody in the restaurant knew that like, you know, oh, she made him wait again. And it's this very like ego driven, embarrassing, like, you know, uh, yes, she's not paying enough attention to me. The dragon, the dragon lady, ice queen, Mr. Priestly. Um, And she's Mm -hmm. which God forbid a man take a woman's last name. I don't even know if that's what really happened or if she just knows no i don't think think it's just like a it's like a turn of phrase as they would call him mr Priestley, because she's more right and that really just like so women being career driven and the men who kind of don't stick by them because they're like whining about Mm -hmm. not getting enough attention Mm -hmm. so those are kind of like the big themes that i grabbed um and so you know we can talk about that a little bit even like this woman being the quote-unquote breadwinner there's some interesting things about that like um even statistically in the United States. So in 1976, only 56.3% mm-hmm. of married mothers worked for pay compared with 69.6, uh, so almost 70% in 2017, as of 2017. Um, mm. This is uh, you know, mediated by race. So women of color, especially black women, have kind of always been more likely to work outside the home. So this is, you know, right. that's just something to be named. But in 2017, so that's like the last year they they did this survey, mm-hmm. 41% mm-hmm. of mothers were the sole or primary breadwinners for their families, which is a huge wow. shift. Yeah, earning at least half of their total household income. Um, and okay. so... That's, that's actually Yeah, who are huge. either breadwinners or co-breadwinners, right? And then... Um, for sole breadwinners, it's actually twenty three point two percent. So, like, like the okay. either. So the is that for is that twenty three percent included in the forty one percent? So basically, eighteen uh, percent of mothers are in a co parent household where they mm-hmm. make more money. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's about what I would expect. Yeah. Then I thought the four. I would. Yeah, looping that in makes yeah. a lot more sense. So. There's some interesting uh, theories or like, you know, thinking about um, feminist theory and how that, you know, like ties into this and how we have this kind of gender order um, where men are kind of expected to be working outside the home and women are expected to be like head of the household. There's these studies that have shown that men benefit a lot more from marriage than women do because men can focus on work and women can take care of kind of the other life duties and make their lives much easier. It's like men get help and women now get more responsibility. Um, And so there's kind of this this one study that just kind of looked at the attitudes um, towards male versus female Ugh, women with attitudes. <laughs> no, towards <laughs> no, thank you. Towards male versus female breadwinner. Um, so you know, okay. since the 1970s, the attitudes towards like 
you know, having the male breadwinner and female homemaker family model kind of has decreased, but it's not really Mm -hmm. been a straight trajectory. So um, there's some data that suggests the U.S. gender egalitarian ideology peaked in the mid-1990s and began to slide back during the early 2000s, especially among women buying into this, which is very interesting. Wow. Yeah. Um, well, that I think makes sense. I mean, we also see like a lot of things that we're looking at politically right now. I mean, this is again, as we talked about at the beginning, uh, you know, the Roe v. Wade, or, you know, totally. being overturned totally. and things like that. Uh, they, I mean, there is a real, there's, there's a good amount of research, and I'm of course just paraphrasing and reflecting off memory right now with this. But starting around 2001 with uh, the 9/11 mm-hmm. attacks that really sort of shifted American ideology, started this pendulum swing yeah. that is now going to the right, um, despite general public opinion still sort of l- progressing and advancing on many issues that this sort of, um, it's it, it's almost a further division, that there's less sort of unanimous agreement mm-hmm. that was moving to the this sort of progress. And now that there's a louder and louder and larger and larger voice demanding this sort of like very direct pull in the opposite yeah, direction. Yeah, and I think the 9-11 like, like historical markers is true because I think a lot of this is fear-based, right? Yeah, um, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And that's, you know, the Republican narrative of like America being taken from us really, um, you know, existed before then. I mean, but it's also very, it's, it's what, you know, it's what Hitler did in Germany to say like Jews are taking right. our country right. from us was a real, was the us real like driving them. narrative. And that sort of loss that that loss um, concept is what really drives the action rather than um, just sort of this idea of movement. It, it really needs to be framed as something being taken right. from you. And so they've put this like family values, you know, spin, which of course existed before 2001, obviously. But it's also um, this like really, really intense. Yeah. Like, the scarcity mindset. Patriotism. Too, right. Not that like mm-hmm. there's enough for ev- it's not like justice there's like some you know like the pool of justice or like you know fairness that can be drawn from it's like nope if you if you give something to someone something is being taken from you um there's actually did i tell you about this study that they looked at the brains of um people of different political parties i've heard a little bit uh but i don't think you've told me about it i've heard so this is uh looking at like republican versus democrat brains basically doing some imaging studies they found uh higher amygdala activation in republicans versus democrats so So this fear-based narrative really driving that um conservative ideology actually i don't even think that it's not democrats versus republicans it's conservative versus liberals to make it more yeah yeah and then there is some evidence to suggest that liberals had more activation in areas of the brain um related to empathy than conservative people which makes complete sense but there is neural support (laughs) for that yeah Yeah. absolutely well and also like as like you know a bleeding heart Mm -hmm. liberal as as they like to say like it's not fun worrying all the time about other people right like it's not the kind of like and i think that like it makes sense that other people when they're like ah they're just blah 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 it's like yeah we obviously have a very different way of our brains functioning exactly because and and Evidence the I- supports that. The idea that you must harm others in order to, I mean, th- that war mm-hmm. mindset, right? That you must harm others in order to feel comfortable is like, no, 
that makes me feel way yeah. worse. Yeah. I don't yeah. love that. Um, I feel like we went on a tangent. Back, we did. Let's bring okay. it back to so workplace back to, yeah, leadership. Yeah, yeah, women and men in the workplace. Um, so in addition to, you know, kind of these changing attitudes and the increase in women, uh, you know, contributing to household income, um, there's this thing called the support gap hypothesis. Have you heard of it? Mm-hmm. Um, no. It's by Bell. Uh, in 1982, came up with the support support gap hypothesis, which suggests that women receive less support from their spouses than men receive from their spouses. So this is that idea that men yes. benefit from marriage more than yeah. women. Um, right. And this is especially true. There's a study from 2005 by Schwarzer and Gutierrez Donna that when mm-hmm. uh, speaking specifically about dealing with work stress, Women, women uh-huh. received less support than their husbands, and the the support they did receive was often not helpful. <laughs> that is, right. you know, the support uh, women received from their husbands did not significantly reduce their work stress. Some of that has to do with, like, general expectations, how men and women uh, manage emotions, are taught to manage their emotions, um, the expectations that women are kind of the nurturers, right? Um, so there's some of that yeah. that's just, like, social programming, but... It's also just, you know, women do not benefit as much uh, from marriage. There is one study that looked at um, at this in lawyers. And so they actually mm-hmm. found that, um, you know, supporting this, right, uh, men receive more emotional support from their spouse than women. Uh, but if both people are in the same occupation, um, that kind mm-hmm. of effect goes away. So there's this occupation similarity that can actually, like, help both uh, men and women, you know, and heterosexual uh, couples. So if both partners work within the same sort yeah, of Yeah, so if, if both the um, spouses are lawyers in this study specifically, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The, the amount of support that they receive is not significantly different. So okay. there is this, like, occupational similarity thing. If we want to compare that to the movie, we see that Adrian Grenier is, like, in oh, a absolutely. very different field. Um, and it does not allow him to have empathy for what, even less empathy for what Andy is going through. Which, I mean, that just means, I mean, based on what I've heard, it's just good casting. <laughs> right. It's just good casting. Exactly. Um, but yeah, yeah, so that's kind of like the women as breadwinners kind of research that I did. Um, I also found this study or a couple of studies that uh-huh. I'm like, was uh-huh. a real fun find because I didn't, <laughs> I didn't okay. expect to find it. Um, Go off this. <laughs> Sorry, so bad. <laughs> it's literally, a, it, there's a bunch of studies. Um, but essentially, the thesis is exposure to luxury goods makes you more selfish. Oh. Um, yes. So there's some really, okay, yeah, there's some this. really interesting studies, like empirical studies. So, um, one one study from Chua and Zhao, uh, as part of like the Harvard 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 Business School. What? I really wish it was like one study from Proenza Schuler, <laughs> and it was like one study from Dolce & Gabbana. Said yeah, um, no, it's yeah. not from them. But uh, basically, they had one exper- experiment where they had two groups of people um, who like viewed a bunch of images that were either of luxury goods or non-luxury goods, had them evaluate them to kind of confirm that that was like, Mm -hmm. they, they believed what they were seeing was luxury or kind of not luxury. 
Um, is this the study where the theory that Andy Sachs previously thought Club Monaco was couture? <laughs> is that where that yes, came that from? Yes, that was a question on the follow-up questionnaire. Okay. Um, no, no, no. <laughs> but then they had to fill out this questionnaire where they had to pretend they were a CEO of a company and then indicate like the, their level of endorsement um, of a product. So one of them was like, right. would you like um, start production on a, on a car that would be super profitable for your company, but not be great for the environment or like a video game that would sell like so much, but may induce right. violence in young boys. Um, and the people who are viewing the luxury goods endorsed um, like going into production more than the people yeah. who weren't looking at luxury goods. Right, right, There's right, right. also a, a follow-up experiment um, that kind of wanted to see whether, differentiate between whether um, people were just like more pursuing their own self-interest, like money in this case, right. or if they were really like trying to harm <laughs> other people. Um, <laughs> they were like Yeah, they're like, great, violence, yeah. Antagonistic. Um, so they had participants in two groups where they viewed these luxury or non-luxury goods, so kind of this, um, uh, like, priming them to be in either of these mindsets. Um, and then they did a word recognition task, where it was like the scrambled uh -huh. word that had, like, a pro-social word in it, and also an anti-social word in it. Um, so the pro-social, like, good and nice, or, like, anti-social is, like, rude, or, you know. Um, and then... So essentially whether they're like unconscious was more. Yes. So they looked at. <laughs> yeah. So if they were just more self-interested that they measured that by just like them not even registering the pro-social words as much. But if. Bitch, I can't even spell selfish. <laughs> like what? No, the pro-social. So they just don't pick up on like words like nice or like good. Um, but if they're actually sure. like becoming kind of more like psychopaths, <laughs> like, you know, yeah. like. Uh, being okay with harm to others, they would indicate more antisocial words. So that was their hypothesis of how they'd measure it. So luckily, I guess, they were just, um, this luxury group just failed to recognize pro-social words. They weren't actually picking up on more antisocial words. So they're just Whoa. selfish. They're not trying to harm others. Mean. Yeah. There's, right, which I do think is an important distinction. It is, it is. It was definitely important to kind of like tease that apart. There's another study. Right. That was so. This was actually in men and women. This was like a mixed study. Uh, I mean, it's giving very like Smaug the Dragon <laughs> kind of vibes, where it's like, "This is my gold. <laughs> like these are my nice yeah. things. You may not touch right. them. They are mine." <laughs> so this is a nice there thing. Was, there was yeah. yeah. So there was another study that was just with women, <laughs> and mm -hmm. they were literally given a Prada or a Louis Vuitton handbag. Or an unbranded okay. handbag. This was... How do I do this study? <laughs> this is the, like, induce, like uh, yeah, induction. So um, after using the luxury product, uh, mm -hmm. the, so those women, they had, like, these different studies. So one of them was, like, they had to fill out a questionnaire, and they had, like, a tray of pens. And one of them was, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, quote-unquote desirable, so it was, like, in good condition. And the other ones were in bad condition, like, smudged or, like, whatever. And they were told, Judon. yeah, they were told that um, these pens were to be shared with their group. So here, you get to choose first. And so the oh, women no. in the luxury group chose that last uh, quote-unquote desirable pen way more than the women in the uh, non-luxury group. Um, they also... So this whole thing of like, sorry, y'all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Of just like, well, this is how it goes, you know, like... 
I guess I'm just yeah. better. Yeah, well, there is. they also perceived themselves to have um, higher social status. Literally from All receiving right. one designer bag, they, like, perceived increased social status and superiority. Um, they It wasn't even a Birkin. They seem like trash. <laughs> Sorry, I also took this study and I was found to think I was the most right. superior. Yeah, you got like bonus yeah. points for that. Um, they right. also had to like split a pot of money between themselves and oh, no. someone who is like, quote unquote, the oh, loser no. of, you know. And so it was like between one and ten dollars. And so obviously the, the women in the luxury group uh, gave less money to the losing partner and took more money for themselves. Um Trickle down economics is is sweating. Yes. Although, so then there was this very interesting thing though, that um, about like giving money to charity, and they looked uh-huh. at um, you know whether uh, participants would give money to charity in either group, um, but they also like varied whether this was done in public or private. Okay. So in private, the women with the luxury in the luxury group did not give right. any money to charity. <laughs> we're not into in it private. in private. In public, they were more likely to give money to charity as like this. As long as it was at a exactly. gala and they could carry that new exactly. bag. And it was like this. Yeah, $500 a right. plate. Why not just give that money to poor and people? They, How about you just do things? <laughs> they perceived it as like something that would benefit their social status, further increase that social status. Um, sure. And there was really no, in the non-luxury group, there was like no difference between public and private. So... Just talking about like luxury, these people in these elite groups, these people who are just around beautiful, expensive things all the time, some of that could influence like just how shitty they are. Yeah. Wow. Fashion ruins lives. Exactly. That's what I've always said. But the stuff is really nice. Yeah, that's true. Things. But yeah. Things. Stuff. Oh my God, I love this. I love this. Also... I guess this answers the question. The women are the villains. Yes. This that, is, the this fact is the that answer. They... You know who deserves a real, you know who deserves his own movie? Nate, the chef. What? The boyfriend? Uh, I yeah. forgot what his name was. Yeah, let's be real. The devil wears Prada. In fact, in this movie, the devil probably wears those dance-go clogs <laughs> that chefs wear. The devil wears dance-go. Yes. Well, there's multiple devils. Yeah. The devil is everywhere. Yeah, in this movie... Yes, except Stanley except Tucci, for, he's an yeah. angel, but he does hate fat people, so he needs to do some yeah. work. He on needs himself. to just check in. This and it is an interesting sort of tone that I think the movie, um, of course, Andy being the protagonist, they insult her, and so you're supposed to be on the side of Andy in the sense that like the insults are supposed to make the the those at at runway seem selfish, bad, shitty, biased, mm-hmm. you know, bigoted. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that when writing this film, I think they were like, oh, no, it's OK to make these fat jokes because they're supposed to be terrible people by making the fat jokes. But then you also like buy into it in a way where it is like some of the fat jokes are like when watching it the first time when she has the not even this is uh, a joke about Emily being so obsessed with being thin that she's on a diet where she doesn't eat anything at all. Except when she's about to pass out, she has a cube of right. cheese and now she's just one stomach flu away from her goal mm-hmm. weight obviously talking about disordered eating in here which then technically makes it a fat joke right the desirability is to be as not well, even just what she possible. eats in the cafeteria talking about eating carbs the main ingredient that is cellulite is what they say um 
But it's one of those things that when I watched this the first time, I thought these were jokes were the funniest thing. Right. This was 2006. Was so clever and we were so in funny. college. It was we were very impressionable. We, we, it was 2006. We were in college. We were very impressionable. I was also like just starting to work in the fashion industry mm. and was very obsessed with a lot of the ideas that were coming up in this film and really wanted to be seen and loved and accepted within that world. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, I, I watched this yeah, and so. was like, wait, what size am I? <laughs> am I? Six? Oh, I'm sure. I'm yeah. sure. Um, I mean, I also watched this when I was uh, six feet tall and 115 pounds. Right. So Cute. I was like, mah, 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 mah. that's so funny. <laughs> um, but also it's just like bitchy, you know, catty right. humor. But I think like, let's acknowledge that like, woof, that's, that's the main thing I think that this film would have to change. And that I will say like, at least on the surface, the fashion industry is uh, absolutely changing and diversifying. There are the some efforts, and, yeah. And the, there is some efforts. There's at least a, there's a lot more acknowledgement mm-hmm. now than there was, especially. Uh, and one thing that is really not talked about is the fact that there's one or there's two black people in this movie, right. one designer and yeah. one friend, um, both of whom uh, pretty inconsequential, other than to like you know drop in for some plot points. Right. But again, diversity in this film right. not great. What I researched. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about for it. this movie. Um, well, the first thing I looked at was um, I, I found an article on the masculine and feminine sides of leadership mm. and culture and sort of the perceptions versus the reality. Um, I actually chose not to go into like a psych journal for this. And I, I went and I looked at um, I looked at a think piece from uh, the Wharton School of Business, nice. right? Which is uh, the number one business school in the country, you know, arguably, but certainly one of the most famous at the University of Pennsylvania, Ivy League Business mm-hmm. School. Um, very, very famous business school at Penn. Uh, and they sort of looked at the ways in which these like gender perceptions of women executives are viewed. Mm-hmm. And so when like, when they asked, uh, you know, a group of people, uh, what are some like, words that describe female leaders. They said things like multitasking, emotional, empathetic, strong, intuitive, compassionate, relationship building, verbal, um, collaborative, right? And gossip. Mm-hmm. Um, was bossy one then, of them? W- no, I should name, uh, when they asked women, okay. they actually just asked, they only asked a group gotcha. of women. Uh, and then when they asked for words about male leaders, they said strong, arrogant, intelligent, ego-driven, bravado, uh, dominant, assertive, um, single-tasking, uh, self-righteous, and direct. Mm-hmm. And so these women sort of had the, these ideas uh, that women um, in the workplace are often seen as like holding a grudge, um, and that uh, and that men don't often get enough uh, sort of acknowledgement for the ways in which they're passive-aggressive, or they sort of sit in the bushes and wait to really mm-hmm. attack, and that men have this sense of entitlement, right? That it is a given that a, that they will be successful, right? right? Everything is sort of a, along the lines of their narrative toward mm-hmm. success. And so, you know, a lot of the things that they're trying to figure out in this, um, in the research that this uh, business professor does is looking at masculine traits and feminine traits. Um, because, you know, there there is a lot of evidence that shows if you just look at men versus women, a lot of the women who are successful actually have what we would consider to be, quote, masculine yes. traits. They gave an example of um, Linda Alvarado, who um, uh, formed her own company in, in construction and then also broke gender stereotypes by becoming a part owner of the Colorado Rockies. Mm-hmm. Right. So looking at the CEO, it's like, oh, she's a woman. What is she doing to be successful? And it's like, well, she's actually embracing these sort of things. So we, they, they looked a little more at like what 
culture is. And so they are essentially saying that if your leadership style is more feminine and you're in a masculine culture, that there's a role in congruity. And so people won't consider you to be effective because your, your actions don't fit the perception of leadership. Interesting. Yeah. Right? And so it's, yeah, I, which I really appreciate separating between men and women and really looking towards sort of these gendered cultural experiences. Um, you know, and essentially, it, you know, men tend to be more task oriented and women tend to have more of an interpersonal style of mm -hmm. leadership. So a masculine style is very assertive and task based. Um, I'm giving you these things. Uh, and feminine style is more relationship oriented and democratic. Mm -hmm. What would you like to do? What are you interested in? And where can we sort of point mm -hmm. you? Men tend to take uh, greater intellectual risks and men have higher self-esteem, whereas women are often seen as coping with the dynamics of the space. So women are trying to get through and men are trying to get past, yeah. right? Does yeah, that totally. Like men are trying to get like to their ending mm -hmm. point and women are just trying to like hold it right. together, which I think makes well, There's this whole imposter syndrome thing too, right? Of like the self-esteem yeah. and the thinking you belong oh, in a space, yeah. Absolutely. Well, and you know, as I was reading this, I was thinking about when we did um, the conversation about women and sports and how we were like, right, but sports were invented by men, which means they're normed. Uh, yeah. like the, the, this, the concepts and the tasks in sports are man tasks. Right. So even if we're giving sports that like where it's women playing sports and we can talk about all the ways women are good at sports, it's really only sports where, you know, where they're really truly separate between men and women that we're actually able to see the ways in which women excel mm -hmm. um, in ways that men are not capable of excelling. Right. And that's why these, you know, anyways. So, I, I, you know, I think business is, is a very similar thing, right? It's so designed in, you know, this reverse engineering to have women sort of come into this world where it's like, yeah, but it's already built on this sort of like dominance-based culture, right. you know, financial right. success, all of these things, right? The, the outcomes of success are very man -focused. Totally. So they actually looked at a company that I really thought, um, matched with a lot so so one of the things they talk about is the in order to really understand how people are going to be committed and and engage in superior levels of performance for their company depends on what they call person culture fit mm -hmm. so you want to find people who are going to believe in the values of your organization mm -hmm. this is stanley tucci versus Anne Hathaway, yeah. right she doesn't care about the values of runway mm -hmm. therefore i was so glad when you when you said this earlier therefore she's not giving it her right. all, right? She is not uh, truly um, integrated into the culture of Runway Magazine. So what this, um, what this professor looked at was the culture of the company Mary Kay. Mm -hmm. So Mary Kay is a huge um, cosmetics uh, and, and skincare company um, that very famously has this very intense culture, right? Where like the top salespeople get uh, pink Cadillacs, isn't or it multi-level marketing? Other gifts. It's a multi-level yeah. marketing scheme, so it really, it really needs this sort of mm -hmm. buy-in. Um, and Mary Kay does so well to understand like its companies or its employees and their needs and values. Um, everybody in Mary Kay gets a personal, um, a handwritten birthday card mm. from one of the executives, right? So there's all of these things. There's there's ritual. There's ceremony. There's this culture, which I think, you know, we, if we compare Runway to like American Vogue, right? There already is this sort of you pray to the church of mm -hmm. Vogue, right? It is the apex of fashion, of beauty, of glamour, of of exclusivity, right? right? And so it already, you know, the people that are happiest there are the ones that 
already are praying at this altar. So this, you know, culture becomes this informational system that people put together to know sort of what they value, but also what the company values of Mm -hmm. them. And so this professor um, sort of considered this work culture like an iceberg, right? And so because what what really matters is um, understanding the sort of the levels Mm -hmm. of and the depth of this culture. So to start, sort of the depth of culture is what's below the surface. Um, we don't even talk about these things because they're obvious, mm-hmm. right, in the, in this concept. So in this, it's the idea that the, the most basic assumption is that the organi- organization's mission is to make mm-hmm. money for a mm-hmm. profit, right? Basic assumptions are, are, are tricky, um, but they're, they are at the center of, like, what's going on, mm-hmm. right? The next layer is values and beliefs. And at this point, this is where things tend to start to divide, right? Because this is the level in which we talk about corporate culture. Mm-hmm. So this is the level where um, things start to uh, present as like norms. So corporate norms become the shorthand way for managers to lead, like um, like this gender-based leadership mm-hmm. styles, right? Like the idea that the social expectation of what's appropriate or what's inappropriate. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting is these uh, these sorts of things, as you get a little lower uh, down the, you know, on the iceberg, aren't always named. Right. Right. So this idea that you must be working within a high intensity, that there, there are these things, right? Like, um, you know, we've talked previously when we did office space about like PTO, right? And so the idea of like giving unlimited PTO actually limits people's mm-hmm. PTO because um, the assumption is that you must be committed to the company. Right. And so they're not able to say, you must be committed to the company, therefore your 40-hour-a-week job should actually take you 80 hours a week. Right. They don't name that. They can't put that on our like mm-hmm. values, right? Instead, they, the very tip of the iceberg is what they name, which is essentially saying like unity right. or family right. or like whatever, 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 which these sort of surface-level values are the things that um, – lead to the sort of confusion, lead to this cognitive dissonance, right? Where it's like what's being said is not what's actually being done. Yeah. And that sort of experience. So Vogue being a glamorous job, right? This is so chic, is so cool, is so like it's the dream. Mm -hmm. So by naming it as the dream, right? And there's a great scene where Emily has a really bad day and she goes, I love my job. Yeah. I love my job. I love my job. And so this sort of like, yeah, this sort of work culture is this weird kind of kind of mix. And the the last little bit that they say is that managers have about four to six months to socialize a new employee into this culture. Mm-hmm. And that maps on so perfectly to this yeah. film. She, within about four months, drinks the Kool-Aid. They even say that, and by yeah. the end, in Paris, she is defending Miranda mm-hmm. to Simon mm-hmm. Baker, to the mm-hmm. mentalist. And she's saying all these things where she's like, no, no, no. If Miranda was a man, if Miranda was this, defending if Miranda was that. Defending her, yeah. Defending her. Yeah. And he's like, "What? who are you? And then he's like, you've turned to the dark side, but it's sexy because he has to always hit right. on her at every right. moment. Very, uh, yeah. Yeah, dimensional character. So, okay, I have a question about this. Where does, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, first of all, that scene also felt a little Stockholm syndrome to me of like totally. buying into it so she can get through it. But also, totally. um, so you even mentioned like unity and family as these cultural or like uh, workplace cultural norms. But there's also this mm-hmm. sense of like the company cares about me and like wants yeah. to do 
good and also wants to do right yeah. by me. Um, mm-hmm. I actually did a little bit of research on like abusive bosses um, oh, and how yeah, it's yeah. like a bit of a trickle down thing. So what this one stat- study by uh, Hubler and Bass from 2006 mm-hmm. um, found that when supervisors or managers felt like things are going wrong that their employer that the company is not respecting them or supporting them or doing right by them um Mm -hmm. they the they will target less powerful others um as a way to like you know whose expense they displace their aggression right there's also this um hostile attribution bias Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. actually these uh people who like are subjected to they call this psychological contract violation so like their employer Mm -hmm. making them feel like not Mm -hmm. as good or that they're not having Mm -hmm. their best interests at heart they also like um can have this hostile attribution bias which means they perceive the actions of others as hostile and react more defensively so in this scenario perhaps miranda is catching wind of they want to replace her she's feeling not not valued she is even more like likely to uh, take that energy out on her employees and she may have this hostile attribution bias on top of that where she thinks that when andy screws up it's a personal attack on her and so there's Mm -hmm. this like revenge or like you know desire to really get back at her because she feels like she's been wronged by her employee she's been harmed so i thought that that you could interpret some of these actions as like fitting into the study, but it's totally. interesting when like there really is this aspect of, of corporate culture and how the mm-hmm. you know company is treating their leadership as well. Um, yeah. That can just trickle down into these very like abusive situations. Yeah, you know one of the 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 last thing I looked into and it was actually so broad that I chose to sort of lean in on my more like clinical understanding there's a lot uh is the idea of this sort of narcissism Mm -hmm. and this culture of narcissism within uh is this our clinical corner this is this our clinical corner um we're going to talk about uh the idea of uh NPD narcissistic personality Mm -hmm. disorder which is a very interesting diagnosis. It's actually quite rare as a therapist to see someone who meets the criteria for a narcissistic personality disorder. Uh, that is because people who are narcissistic don't yeah. seek that was what I was going to say. Right? Is they it don't... that it's not prevalent or is that because all, all, like, a lot of them don't think they need therapy? It's that they are choosing yeah. not to um, engage in right. therapy. Um, I have seen very few people who I have given this diagnosis to. I think one, uh, only one person have I ever seen in my hundreds of people that I have worked with uh, met criteria for this um, and was happy to, to attend therapy because he could about talk himself. about all the ways <laughs> that everybody else was um, disappointing right. him. Uh, I'm not going to give any more detail than that, obviously. Um, as a real person. Uh, so um, the interesting thing about narcissistic personality disorder is your your grandiosity must be above and beyond what the world confirms for mm-hmm. you. So in the rare instance of somebody who is truly unbelievably powerful, in this example of Miranda mm-hmm. Priestley, her opinion is the most important opinion in a multi billion 
dollar industry. Yeah. I, I cannot stress that enough. Like, yes, I know it's, it's quote, just fashion. Vogue is one of the most influential commercial magazines that has ever existed. Yeah. Because just like in the Cerulean thing, even if Old Navy is not advertising in Vogue, what the, the decisions and the trends set in this, this magazine about what high, high, high luxury things to buy is what will influence the trends going forward for decades. Mm-hmm. A single September issue of Vogue, you could probably track the, the work in that magazine for mm-hmm. years uh, throughout the mm-hmm. industry, right? So the, uh, the gravity of the decisions that she's making, she's not really yeah. wrong, which also means for her to have such an inflated opinion of herself is not incongruent with the world's value of her opinions it's interesting because even at the end when they're trying to replace her that's like i guess some evidence that she isn't as important as she thinks she is but what she says is like no one can do what i do no one can do what i do so she is also bought Mm -hmm. in on this idea but i i think you know narcissism serves a function Mm -hmm. Right, everything, almost every disorder, in some way that is not just a true um, physiological um, impairment, mm-hmm. right, where like your brain is is uh, having actual functional, you know, something is is off biologically. Mm-hmm. Almost all mental illness, personality disorder, etc., is a coping mm-hmm. strategy. It's especially personality disorders are where you have really a very narrow range of what coping strategies you can employ. And in this one, hers is to double down on self and reject Mm -hmm. other. And so this narcissism, honestly, I think it would be so much easier to do her job as a narcissist than it would be to do her job as a normal thinking person. Oh, my God, how would you sleep? Right. Right. You would always be right. And so for her to shut down, you know, there's a lot about these bosses, these management styles, these this bullying where you shut down ideas and you close down these things. When you are managing a team of what Vogue must have a thousand creatives Mm -hmm. that work within it or people that consider themselves stylists, uh, writers, like creators in some way Mm -hmm. or another. A thousand creative opinions it actually makes a lot of sense to me yeah why the person best suited for this job is the one who shuts down the most opinions and then is so highly selective of which opinions she lo- allows to speak that in a way it allows this sort of trickle down thing it it yes it buys into this grind culture it buys into this idea that of course leaves us mm-hmm. stuck in mm-hmm. a lot of ways right it leaves us stuck in this fat phobia it leaves us stuck in white supremacy mm-hmm. it leaves us stuck in a lot of ways but considering that at the end of the day, the core mission of Vogue is to make money. The value is of course to celebrate artists and Mm -hmm. beauty. No, the core thing is to go back to that first uh, sort of article is to make money and she will do that. And her persona continues to perpetuate that idea. I mean, that's even how she like retains her power, right? Because that guy, the publisher guy, like she yeah. makes the argument of like you will lose money if you displace me and how she gets mm-hmm. Jacqueline to accept the other job is money. It's more money. 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 Mm-hmm. Money. <laughs> money. Money please. please. Um, yeah. I mean, I so I think like, you know, a lot of people and I'll also say a lot of people throw the word narcissism around. We've talked about this before. Um, 
and I, I really like what you said earlier, right? Self-involvement is different than meanness. Mm -hmm. So you can be sort of myopic. You can be sort of self-focused. Mm -hmm. All of mm -hmm. us are in some way or another. And I will say like as a therapist, a lot of times the work I have to do is to either help people broaden the, the way they center their narrative onto others or help people, uh, the, people who only think of themselves uh, the goal is to help them start to think right. of others in relationships. Because if you only think of yourself, that also causes conflict. Right. And the other half of what I do as a therapist is helping people who always center the needs yeah. of others and helping them learn how to comfortably accept that they also have totally. needs. And it really is a 50-50 mm -hmm. split. And it's not Both are important. half the people only have one need and half the people have the other. It really is this sort of blend. Mm -hmm. And I do think a lot of times, I, I, there's probably more there's more people in therapy who center the narrative on others and then are coming to therapy because they want to fix themselves to make things right. better. And so a lot of the work you have to do is to engage in self-compassion and understand like, oh, you spend all of your time so worried. Right. Um, so how there's do we do also this? Like, but, but all of it is a coping right. strategy. I think with the, those people, it's like there's like this internal locus of control where you think that like if you do things mm -hmm. differently – it can mm -hmm. influence the bad things that are happening with other people as well. Absolutely. So it's kind of like overly yeah. attributing things to yourself as well. Yeah. yeah. Which I think tends toward, like the, those with an internal locus of control tend toward anxiety. Mm -hmm. Because, oh God, if you're in control of everything, then you got a lot of work to yeah. do. You better not chill out. And I think depression often leads to this, like it is uh, attached to this external locus of control mm -hmm. where, oh, if I have no control over everything, then what's right. the point? What what am I even trying right. to do? And this is, uh, I could do I could do real research. This is a guess. This is an, an informed sort of educated opinion, um, and sort of view, an anecdotal view of um, sort of the valence of anxiety and depression and the ways in which they may trend. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. Right. We could do a whole episode on that. I feel like part two, Devil Wears Prada next week. <laughs> just kidding that is not what's happening no but yeah what a fun okay episode we, this was so fun i this movie just brings up a lot of stuff i had so much fun with the research so much fun i just so much fun watching it yeah it's, i mean it's at the fun. end of the day what i really hope people take away is that they know if that, that if there's one thing the devil's gonna do it's wear prada exactly period everybody knows that that's yeah. it end of list of things the devil's gonna do <laughs> i was googling like Devil Wears Prada psychology because that's what I always do with yeah, every yeah, movie. Yeah, totally. But one of the first things that came up is why is the Devil Wears Prada so good? <laughs> do you know what <laughs> I found? Like a million papers that you can buy on these like college student paper sales websites where you can oh, buy really? essays to like re to just like print out and use as your own. Mm -hmm. Which, y'all, don't do this. If you are yeah. listening, everyone has Turnitin. And it means if I'm it's getting so these easy keywords to track. in a thing to, to pop up, they pop up in a keyword search on totally. Google. Totally. Bad news. Don't do mm -hmm. it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Not today. <laughs> Not today. I'm honestly so relieved that those things, those those paper sort of libraries didn't exist when I was in college because I it's was tempting, a deeply lazy probably. person. <laughs> uh, and might have tried to. Oh, so tempting. So yeah. tempting. Yeah. Ugh. So glad Anywho. I didn't have that. Thrilled. <laughs> Thrilled. Um, all right. This has been such a treat. I have been Dr. J.D. Barton. 
And I have been Dr. Joanna Witkin. This is another gorgeous episode of Real Psych. Thank you for listening. Rate, review, subscribe. Tell a friend. Tell two friends. Tell two friends. (laughs) We love you. Bye. Bye.